Welcome to City Life again this Saturday evening. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn where I just turned mine to Revelation chapter 2, because I will meet you there in terms of our content in just a minute. But I hope you've had a good week. I hope you've had a good week as we've been apart, but we're back together worshiping. I know for some of us, it was a week full of meetings. <laughs> uh, Steph and I, we, we met with the elders on Wednesday, and one of the things we talked about because of these missions giving cards is what uh, the baker's dozen of missionaries and mission work we support, and then what we can add. And we talked about adding three new missionaries, upping what we're giving to one of the missionaries we support, all because of these missions giving cards which have been given in this month. So I say all that because numbers-wise, we know, and I know from talking to some of you, life happens, you forget, you still got it like tucked away somewhere in your purse or in the back of your Bible. If you've still got these, you can drop these off because it really is. We're, we're able to support more missionaries this year than we ever have before. So let's keep rallying and make that bigger than we ever have. And I made it easy. I went out during worship and put these under your windshield wipers. Just kidding. I didn't. (laughs) But yeah, if you got or if you don't have one, maybe you totally misplaced yours. They're out there at the info center. You can drop those off out there. But uh, it's exciting because really there's mission work going on from seeing you up the street all the way to China across the world. And uh, it's all through just your generosity. And we know that what we talked about last week, God cares about the church not just here. God cares about the church all over the world. And we're in this series called Seven, or Dear Seven Cities, as we sit on the cusp of the seven cities. And uh, the tagline is just, you've got mail from Jesus. Because these are seven letters written by Jesus, spoken by Jesus to seven churches in seven cities in the beginning of Revelation. And last week we opened the series to provide context as we kind of just dive into each of these seven letters. And if you weren't here, the Cliff Notes version is Jesus cares about the church, right? As soon as Jesus shows up to John on this island of Patmos, he's like, let's talk about the church. And when John sees this vision of Jesus in his glory, where is he? He's amidst the seven lampstands, which represents the seven churches. As we talked about last week, none of these churches are perfect. Most of them are pretty wretched. That's why he's correcting them. And yet Jesus is amongst them. Jesus still cares about the church. Jesus still pours into the church. Jesus still loves the church. All that to say, if you're following Jesus and you're kind of on a solo mission that's taking you away from the church, check yourself because you might not be following as close as you think. Jesus is in the midst of his church. So this week, we're going to jump into the letters, starting with the first one, which is the letter to the church in Ephesus in Revelation 2, which we'll read in a second. But before we jump in, the, the letter to the church in Ephesus gives us like an outline or, or, or common elements in every single one of these letters that are written to these churches. And each one of them starts with, to the angel of fill in the blank, which is his way of addressing which church he's speaking to. And then in each letter, we get a unique description of Jesus in his glory. It's often done in like one phrase or one thought. And, and why? Because it serves as a reminder of what we talked about last week. Jesus is at the heart of your church. However your church is doing, whatever advice Jesus has for you, Jesus should be at the center. Jesus is the reason we come together. Jesus is at the heart of the church. And it's where we find Jesus in the midst of these seven lampstands representing these seven churches. And then in each letter, we get an I know, which usually precedes a commendation or encouragement. And that should be an encouragement in and of itself. That God sees and God knows. And not only does God know, but God cares. Like God sees your life, God knows, but he's not just some omniscient God sitting back up in heaven, but he cares, right? He cared enough to send his son and he still cares today. 
But then we get a, but I have this complaint against you. We go from the commendation to the correction. Again, God sees and he knows and he cares both the good things and the bad things. So he gives counsel, action steps. And then this phrase that we'll dig into tonight, he says, anyone with ears to hear must listen to the spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. And then in each letter we get a promise concerning their destiny and eternity, which you could call, if you're taking some deep notes, an eschatological promise. So that's a rough outline of each letter. And I, and I go through that because we're going to be spending seven weeks. We might as well go through the, the main points we're going to see in each letter. And again, last week we looked at the context of the letters. And you might ask the question, if these letters themselves are written to churches thousands of years ago, specific churches that haven't been around for a long time, how should we be applying them to, like, me and our church? And it's a good question. But again, Jesus says in these letters, anyone who hears, who has ears to hear, should hear what Jesus is saying to these churches. Now, what's interesting to me, that means for the original recipients, right, the, the churches receiving these letters, they're getting the whole package. They're reading each other's mail. You might think, cool, well, some of these churches, they're doing pretty bad. And their uh, state of the church address is being read to all the churches. That might be a little embarrassing. It's like your, your, your review at work being read in front of the whole company, right, your performance review. You know, clearly each church, though, was called to hear and heed to each one of these letters and respond in kind, even if the message wasn't direct, directly written to them. So for us as a church all this time later, I would simply say, if the shoe fits, wear it, <laughs> whether it's uh, us as a church, whether it's as individuals, we have ears to hear. So let's heed the word of God that he wrote to these churches. And also, side note, I think sometimes we can overestimate or, or overstate the uniqueness of our era and culture, especially when we catastrophize or say it's worse than it's ever been. We simply need to brush up on history. Like we think our culture is sex crazy. Like you see the halftime show at the Super Bowl, right? The church in Ephesus that we're going to look at tonight existed in the shadows of one of the seven wonders of the world where there was a cult where thousands of male and female prostitutes were part of the worship, just part of the worship, thousands of prostitutes. So it's worth remembering now and again that we've been jacked up since Genesis 3, right? <laughs> Like the impulses of our flesh and the depravity that follows when we just give in to our every impulse, there can be filed away as there's nothing new under the sun. But as we look at these passages and we look to harvest meaning and application, it does help to look at what's the context, what is this church, what's this region like. So that's what we're going to do tonight. But let us read the text. We, we're there. Hopefully you're there by now. It's Revelation 2, verses 1 through 7. Again, this is Jesus speaking to John and telling him, write this letter to the angel of the church in Ephesus. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. I know all the things you do. I've seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You have examined the claims of those who say they are apostles but are not. You've discovered they are liars. You have patiently suffered for me without quitting. But I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Look how far you've fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. 
If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. But this is in your favor. You hate the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans just as I do. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give fruit from the tree of life in the paradise of God. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we prayed earlier, and we asked that we would be made more aware of your presence. God, I pray that you would speak. Holy Spirit, speak. Help us to dig into this text. As we have ears to hear it, we just heard it. Help us to unearth what it would say to us and let those seeds bear fruit in our lives. So we can love you better. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's try one more time. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah. So before we dig too deep, this phrase, again, that Jesus uses in this letter, those who have ears to hear, do it. <laughs> hear, take heed. And it's interesting. And it's one we should, again, pause over as we uh, review these letters each week. What does that mean for our hearing? What does that mean for the way we listen to these letters? Because I think sometimes we can read Scripture. For instance, for example, the parable of the tax collector that Jesus tells in Scripture, where there's a tax collector and there's a Pharisee. They're both in the temple praying. Tax collector's like, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. And the Pharisee's basically like, thank goodness I'm not like that tax collector. And I think sometimes we can read that and be like, well, thank goodness I'm not like that Pharisee. And then we keep it moving. You know, we, we put ourselves... Or we don't put ourselves anywhere in Scripture, don't hold it up as a mirror, and we just keep it moving. I don't want us to do that with these letters to these churches. Like, at least I'm not like that church, right? There's still ways that we can hear and heed what's being spoken. Again, Jesus says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. This was one of, like, his pet phrases, his favorite phrases in his ministry. And then we see that Jesus resurrected, comes back to John, and he's still saying it. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Like, what is his obsession with hearing? Like, does he like vision and the sense of touch and taste? Is it like his favorite of the five senses? Well, the word that Jesus uses for here is the Greek word akuo. I looked it up, akuo. <laughs> and it's the word we get the word like acoustics from. Like, I play an acoustic guitar, the acoustic sound, akuo. And what's interesting is it's directly related to the Hebrew word shema. If you've been podcasting or we got some visitors from the Newport News campus, that's what Fred has been preaching from in his new series, the Hebrew word shema. And this Greek word is very, very similar because it, it's more than just, hey, let this hit your eardrums and be registered as a sound. It means to heed, to pay attention to. And built into the word is an expected response. Like there is an expectation that you're going to hear and you're going to do something based on it. All in this word, akuo. So it makes sense, right? If it implies fruit, why Jesus would blanket his parable of the four soils, right? speaking of seeds and their fruit, with this phrase. Because he wanted us to akuo his words. So as we read these letters, may we akuo. May these passages serve as a mirror for us so we can respond. Not just hear and walk away and be like, well, thank goodness I'm not like that church. But to actually hear the words and let it bear fruit in our lives so that we can look more like Christ. But this letter, again, like all of the letters, has a unique description about Jesus. And here in Revelation 2, it says that he holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven gold lampstands. So we talked about this a little bit. Last week, how the stars can speak to an angel, some people think. Some people think the messenger that took the letter. Some people think the pastor of that church. But here, for the church in Ephesus, reading this letter, this would have been very clear 
shade, as the kids like to say, thrown at the Roman emperor Domitian. Because Roman emperors, tradition would be like, they'd be declared gods after they die. But the emperor Domitian, he was like, forget that. Treat me like a god now. Right? He declared himself a god while he was still alive. And, and matter of fact, the church in this day, according to history, referred to him as the beast. And some people think that in Revelation, when it talks about the mark of the beast, that they're talking about this emperor, this Roman emperor. Now, we don't know for sure. But what we do know for sure, based on archaeology, is that this emperor Domitian uh, minted coins with his own face on it. Right? We have coins and dollar bills with dead presidents. That's why some people call them dead presidents, right? Uh, we've never had a president that was like, you know what? I'm going to put my face on the dollar right now right, while I'm still around. This is what he did. And what's interesting is on these coins, one side is his face, and then on the other side of the coin is him sitting on the planet, the globe, surrounded by seven stars. And so Jesus is saying this emperor, right, this, this emperor who calls himself a god and threatens your lives for worshiping me alone, he's a paper tiger, and this is a sermon in and of itself, that whatever is causing fear, whatever is stimulating anxiety, God is bigger. Whatever would say it holds the seven stars. No, Jesus holds the seven stars. Jesus holds you. I've been reading Psalms, and like three times in the first 30 chapters, David says, God holds my future. Right? God holds us. So whatever seems to have you in its grip, it's a paper tiger. But then the seven lampstands, we looked at this last week, the church that's the church. It's what represents the church. And like a lampstand, we're called to be light in dark places. So the place setting of this letter in this church is Ephesus. So there's a little more context. Ephesus had over a quarter million residents. So in that time, it's a booming city. It was the commercial center of Asia Minor, just miles from the harbor. So it was one of the three biggest cities in the region and considered the gateway to Asia. And again, it holds one of the seven wonders of the world, this temple to Artemis. And the fact that it was addressed first by Jesus in Revelation, it makes sense ge geographically. It makes sense historically because of its prominence. And it has a place of prominence in the New Testament too. Paul strategically ministered here in Ephesus. Paul was always trying to reach the major cities. And he had some of his most fruitful ministry here. Like if you turn to Acts 19, it's where it talks about Paul's ministry in Ephesus. He basically shows up, he's like, Hey, y'all been baptized in the Holy Spirit? They're like, what's that? He's like, bam, the Holy Spirit falls on them. Right? There's miracles that are happening here in Ephesus. It says that in Acts 19, he, he parked it there for two years to just preach daily. Right? Daily preaching for two years, pouring into this church. There's so many miracles happening. It says at one point they're taking like his handkerchief and his apron. Apparently Paul liked to cook. They're taking that stuff and they're pressing it to people because the miracles were just happening again and again. And God moved in such a mighty way, like it, it affected the economy. Like the, the people that produced idols and made money making idols through a riot because they couldn't make money anymore. Like think about this in the modern context. It's like all the strip clubs shut down in the 757 region because nobody wants to go because they've all been saved, right? That's what we're talking about here. Like the entire uh, economic status of the city is turned upside down by a move of God. So, so many people began following Christ that it became known as the mother church in Asia Minor after the fall of Jerusalem. And some people actually think that Ephesus and the church there could have been responsible for planting all these other churches that get addressed in Revelation. And again, it's one of the reasons it's so prominent in the New Testament. We read about it in Acts 19. Paul writes a letter called Ephesians to this church here. When he's writing Timothy, Timothy's the pastor there, so again he's pouring into this church. 
Some people think it's not confirmed that John's epistles are written to this church. But regardless, and last but certainly not least, Christ writes a letter to this church in Revelation 2. And the key verse in the entire passage that I want to look at tonight as we look at the greater context, but really the key idea is when Jesus says to this church that you have left your first love. In the amplified version, it adds, you have lost the depth of love that you first had for me. That this church, this local body of the bride of Christ had fallen out of love with Jesus, its groom. And you know, I've been talking to Steph and we've been playing around the house. Ever since I started thinking about this sermon that I was going to write about first love and, and falling out of your first love, there's a song by a guy named Raphael Sadiq. And if you don't know who he is, get your life right. He's an R&B legend. But uh, he had a song, a song called uh, Staying in Love, where the chorus is, falling in love can be easy, but staying in love is too tricky. All right? And coming out of Valentine's Day, it's worth asking and reflecting, why is it so easy sometimes for us to fall in love, but that feeling can be so fleeting? Right? Why can be staying in love seems so hard sometimes. And when you look at this passage, right after where Jesus says, hey, you've left your first love, the very next word, the very next command he gives them is remember, consider. Other translations say, keep in mind or look how far you've fallen. You know, I've sat down with husbands or couples that are disillusioned or depressed or saddened by their marriage thinking, how do we get here? How do we get to where we are now? Jesus is asking the church in Ephesus to, hey, pause, sit down, consider where you were, consider where you are now and how you got here. Why do marriages fail? Why does love not last? Why is falling in love so easy but staying in love so tricky? <laughs> you know, one of the first things I tell couples when I do premarital counseling is, one, you'll never be ready. <laughs> I was joking with somebody and I was asking him because he was going through premarital counseling and some pastors will say, I'm, I'm going to give you 20 lessons. You're going to have exams on all of them because I'm going to get you ready. I tell them, look, you're never going to be ready, right? <laughs> We're going to go through some stuff, but the, the foundation for marriage is like so many other things in life. You reap what you sow. You get out what you put in, what you invest. Like, think about it. When, when these couples are stepping in for premarital counseling, they're coming off like a tsunami of the dating season where you're putting so much into that relationship, dates, gifts, flowers, Notes, surprise calls, calls in the middle of the night, right? holding hands. It's why you feel butterflies and goosebumps and love is like electric in that season because right feelings follow right actions. And you're actively investing in this relationship so actively so you're getting a lot out of it. And sometimes we can act like love is passive, like it's something that happens to us. It's a feeling that overcomes us so we fall into love and just as easily fall out of love. Like it just happens to us. But love isn't something primarily that you get. Love primarily is a verb and it's something that you give. The best way to feel love in light of that is give it. And we all understand in life, like relationships don't just happen. Relationships take time and investment. And yet so often the first place we stop investing is our primary relationship at home with our spouse. And then we say, oh, I'm not in love anymore. Like it just happened with this sense of passive bewilderment. But so often when people say that, they stopped actively investing long ago. You get out what you put in. So I'm not like preaching a sermon on marriage, but is, is this what happened with Ephesus? Like they stopped investing in their relationship with God. They just got inactive, passive, and lazy. No, not really. Jesus commends them for their labor. He commends them for their labor. 
encourages them that they'd worked faithfully. These were people that had received that letter from Paul that we call Ephesians, where it says in chapter 2, hey, you've been saved by grace through faith. You're not saved by your works. But then it says, you're God's workmanship created for the work that he's prepared in advance for you to do. And, and the church in Ephesus, they took this to heart. They accrued those words, and they got to work. Church history says they volunteered their time, resources, and energy so much that it became, again, a hub for missionary activity. These are people who worked to learn doctrinal knowledge. They worked to test their leaders to the point where they could be like, you're a false teacher. That ain't in Scripture because they knew Scripture. They learned it. They'd worked to learn it. So it certainly wasn't the work of their hands or a lack of labor that crippled their love for God. Why else is staying in love so tricky? Well, sometimes love dwindles, and it's not because of anybody's fault inside the marriage primarily, but it's outside pressure, outside circumstances, outside pain that maybe isn't rooted in that relationship, but it comes from outside circumstances, outside figures that serve as stressors and can fracture relationships, whether it's illness, tragic loss, trauma. If we don't lean into our spouse in those seasons and lean in collectively into Jesus, it can fracture relationships. So again, was this the church in Ephesus, right? Was, was that their problem? Did they crumble under outside pressure? Not really. <laughs> Jesus commends them for their perseverance. He encourages them because like, I've seen you endure hardship. Ephesus was not an easy place to be a Christian. Again, there's the emperor Domitian. He was worshipped as a god, and to not worship him or to really what was, was problematic is the Romans didn't want you worshiping Jesus alone. Oh, you could add him to a list of gods, right? That's cool. But if you're worshiping Jesus alone and not worshiping the emperor, that's a problem. You know, the Romans had their, their roads that, that are famous. There were four roads that went into Ephesus, and one of them became known as the Martyr's Highway because so many Christians were walked out on that road to be killed. Right? And, and again, this is where a place where there's a temple where thousands of prostitutes are part of worship. This is not an easy place to raise your family. Right? This is not an easy place to be a believer and follow Christ. And yet they have persevered, endured hardship, and pressed on. Jesus is saying, I've seen it. I want to encourage you in it. I commend you for it. But I think that's why the third commendation that Jesus gives them is so key. These people had sound doctrine. They didn't give in to traditions or false religions that weren't of Christ, weren't in Scripture. They could, they could see a heretic for what it was, right? Somebody that's just trying to, to lead people astray. And I think it's here that we understand where they kind of went off the rails. Because the Ephesians, they love truth. But they failed in the two greatest commandments, love God and love people. You know, in simple terms, their relationship with God was all head, no heart. It was an intellectual exercise in the head, but not an intentional pursuit in the heart. And we need both. Our relationships in life need both. Ravi Zacharias, a great teacher who I probably like too much because he's from India. I'll probably get like a Ravi Zacharias poster and put it up in Roger's room or something. But uh, he says of marriage that without the will, marriage is a mockery. But without emotion, it's a drudgery. You need both. And the church in Ephesus got to the point where they engaged their mind. They engaged their will, but their heart and emotion wasn't in it. Again, it was all head, no heart. How do we know this? The fruit. Judge a tree by its fruit, and amidst their fruit, there wasn't love. What's your fruit? What's our fruit as a church? Because if I read books, I learn doctrine, I work hard, give generously, expel heretics, send out missionary after missionary after missionary, endure hardship, but I don't have love, 
I'm the church in Ephesus. God, John commanded discernment in his epistles. And, and Jesus commends the church in Ephesus' discernment here. Yet I'll tell you one of the most important pieces of discernment that we need as believers is what's the target of our tolerance and what's the target of our intolerance. We don't tolerate untruth, but we tolerate, we love people. Jesus understood this balance of tolerance and intolerance so well, and not only did he walk it well, when he sent out his disciples and told them to be as shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves. What does this speak to? A balance. A balance between a serpent's sharpness and a dove's gentleness, clarity, walking hand in hand with charity, an intolerance for truth, hand in hand with a tolerance for people, being fierce with the error, but gentle with the erring. It's a balance. I've talked about it before. Sometimes in the church, we're not good with balance. We're not good with tension. When there's a tension, we so easily topple one way or the other. And when we lean too far into being fierce like a serpent, we can lose our love. The same church that rightly discerned heretics and was commended for it had drifted from being intolerant of truth to drifting into just being intolerant of people, not loving people the way God has called us to. It's the New Living Translations and other translations that I think are getting on to something when it says that you don't love me or each other as you did at first. You know, some folks make this letter all about their love for God, and clearly that's a piece of it. But John himself in his letter to the church, his first letter to the church, and what we have is chapter 4, says you can't love God and not love people. He says in chapter 4, whoever doesn't love doesn't know God because God is love. Or if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Or in that same chapter, whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they've seen can't love God whom they've never seen. You know, in our culture of division with all its lines in the sand, it's easy to become the church in Ephesus. Like we know the Bible, we know our doctrine, we've memorized the verses, and we keep our verses locked and loaded like bullets in, the, in a chamber. We're ready to just decimate somebody with our doctrine. We're ready to own somebody. It wasn't much different in Jesus' day. The teachers of the law, it says, they'd be like, well, this is the point of the law. Or this is the point of everything God's taught us. Or this is the point until finally it's in Matthew 22. One of them turns to Jesus and like, okay, what's the point of the law? What, what is the main focus? And Jesus said, hey. It's pretty simple. Love God, love people. The entire point of the law is summed up in love. And he quotes Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 5, which is the, I believe it's the first command in Scripture where we see this word Shema to hear. It says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Again, when God asks his people to shema, it means to listen and obey, the same way the Greek word that we looked at does. There's no separate word for obey. When you hear it, the expectation is this is the fruit. Love is the expected, desired response to following God and his commands. It's the fruit when God's word takes root. So the question is, if the Bible is in your head, have its roots grown long enough, that 18 inches or whatever it is, to get to your heart? Have you let the roots reach your heart so that your life can bear the fruit of love? Because if there's no fruit of love, the answer is, is no. Lose love and you've lost the plot. I think sometimes we lose the plot because we as a church, we're not called to engage a culture war. What we're called to do is build a countercultural community known as the church. You want countercultural in our culture? Love your enemy. Love the people that don't vote like you. Love the people that don't look like you. Love the people that don't talk like you or even speak your language. 
love. Anyone who doesn't love doesn't know God, for God is love. The church in Ephesus had knowledge for days, knew all the doctrine, right? But they had grown weak over time in love. And the recipe for that disaster is in 1 Corinthians 8.1, where Paul says, knowledge puffs up while love builds up, builds others up. Puffed up is just an analogy for being full of pride. Scripture also says that, that God draws near to the humble. He's close to the humble, but he despises the proud. It's why God says to the church in Ephesus, not just, hey, remember and consider. He says, repent. Repent, or I'm removing your lampstand. He's saying, repent, <laughs> or you can go on as a country club. You can sing Kumbaya and have TED Talks, but you're not going to be a church, right? Because a church with no love can no longer be considered a part of his body when God is love. The church in Ephesus, man, you, they're encouraged at length. They'd worked hard, right? They had labored. All these different churches had been planted because of them. Missionaries had been sent out because of them. Heretics had been cast out because of them. They had worked hard, labored to build God's church. Who knows if we'd even be here if it wasn't for this church in Ephesus. And yet they were bound to become the people in Matthew 7. Who Jesus says on Judgment Day will be like, didn't we do this, that, and the third for you? Didn't we build the church, right, send out missionaries, cast out demons? Weren't all these miracles happening? And Jesus will say, I never knew you. Because Jesus doesn't just want work and results. He wants relationship. Right? He doesn't want just, like, perseverance is great. He doesn't just want perseverance. He wants personal relationship with each one of us. He doesn't just want slaves that grind, <laughs> And work for him. He wants sons and daughters that know him. He wants a bride of Christ that loves him with an enduring first love. So the question we have to ask before we go anywhere is, okay, if, if the shoe fits and I'm wearing it, how do I get back on track? How do I reignite a love for Jesus, reignite a love for God and his Holy Spirit? Well, I would say return, this is not comprehensive, but returning to our first love, just two thoughts tonight. First, it's re-embracing the truth of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Again, this passage that's written to this exact church by Paul, spoken through the Holy Spirit, through Paul to this church, where again it says you're not saved by works. You're saved by grace through faith. Right? Christianity is not about achieving or doing. It's about grace and love. Our works don't save us. Right? They, they aren't for God. Yes, we are called to have an active righteousness that blesses the world, but that's to show the world the love of God that he's already shown us. Right? When we forget this, when we forget the reality of Ephesians 2, it's so easy to drift into following Jesus in a way that looks like striving, achieving, performing, rather than abiding, rather than right relationship with Jesus. And what was that right relationship look like? It's not about just right beliefs or right actions. It's about right relationship. Because you can do good work and forget who you work for. And forget that person doesn't want to just be your boss. He wants you to be his bride. I mean, just a quick test is, what's your prayer life look like? Is it pausing intermittently to, to ask for transactions like a business partnership? When's the last time you, you paused, simply paused, to heed the words, be still, and know that I'm God. Know that I'm Abba. Know that I'm your heavenly father. Know that I've got your back. Know that I've got this. Know that I hold your life in my hands and I know everything and I care. 
you know, if I could have the worship team come up, they're going to lead us in the song, Holy Spirit, because I really think that the, the second way we can rekindle the love we first had is to, to fall in love and appreciate the Holy Spirit again. Because truth isn't enough, right? Knowledge and doctrine living in our head isn't enough. It's the Holy Spirit in us, in our hearts, because it's he who guides us in all truth. I've talked before in sermons about how we can call ourselves Christians and follow Christ and then live as functional atheists. Like, we're not even distinctive during the week between us and somebody who doesn't follow Christ. Now, hopefully that's not the case with any of us tonight. But there also is something called uh, cessationism. Just this idea that the Holy Spirit was active at the beginning of the church. The Holy Spirit was moving and wanted to work miracles at the beginning of the church. But since then, the Holy Spirit has clocked out, retired, and moved to Florida. Like, just no longer a part of the church. The Holy Spirit has seceded, hence cessationism. I don't think any of us would say this or believe this, but we can live as functional cessationists. Like, we believe that the Holy Spirit is still needed, right? He wants to guide us in all truth, but how often do we pause for that guidance? I'm not saying that we shouldn't have principled beliefs or systemic theology, if you want to call it that, that's going to guide you through life, help you make decisions when you don't have perfect clarity and God just asks you to trust. But some of us live lives that are guided by doctrine and theology to the point where we don't pause to pray. Whether it's praying in the Spirit or asking the Holy Spirit, what's next? Again, show me the receipts of your prayer life. Is it asking God to bless stuff you're already neck deep in? <laughs> is, it, is it like the emergency call to the Holy Spirit to fix what you've already fumbled? Or do you truly lean not on your own understanding and take time to be led, be filled, and follow the Spirit's lead? I read a great quote recently from the missionary Hudson Taylor. He was a missionary to China. He said, don't have your concert first and tune your instruments afterward. Begin with God. Right? Like, don't have your concert first and then tune your instruments afterward. Begin with the Holy Spirit, seeking the Holy Spirit. Again, we can get so sucked into what we know about God or what we know we're called to do for God that we forget that we're called first and foremost to have relationship with him. But when I'm all head and no heart, Jesus can become a concept, a theological idea, or a historical figure, but not a person I'm called to have relationship with. The Holy Spirit can become an afterthought or the forgotten member of the Trinity, but I need the Holy Spirit daily to fill me, like the air I breathe. So as we step into worship, as we're going to sing the song, Holy Spirit, I pray that the words that we've heard in this letter, we'd be able to ask, okay, where are we as a church? Where am I in all this? And may we heed the letter's counsel. First of all, to remember. Remember your first love. That hunger you used to have for God's word. That passionate pursuit you used to have in prayer. Maybe it was the joy you found in gathering with other believers. Maybe it was the boldness of your initial witness. Sometimes we no longer feel the same love, our first love, because we've stopped investing, putting in pursuing but let us not just remember let's rekindle that first love you know if we could stand we're going to go into this song but Jesus says remember but then he also says return he says repent now maybe there's nothing for you to remember because you've never repented maybe there's nothing for you to remember because you've never started a relationship with Jesus you've never started a relationship with God you don't know Jesus is Lord well let that night be tonight but you know, if the Holy Spirit has 
put its finger on anything in your life where you're like, man, I've just drifted. It's not, it's not like it was at first. Again, it could be prayer, it could be time in scripture, it could be your witness, it could be one of a hundred things. But let's not leave this place and think, well, at least I'm not like that church. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak to us. Even as we sing this song, and God, if there's a perspective that needs to shift about the way you see us, about the way we're supposed to see you, about the way we're supposed to see the world, I pray that you would do just that and help us to live lives that, that aren't just working for you, that aren't just following you, but that are in love with you, Lord God. Holy Spirit, do the work that only you can. As we step into worship, Hilters are right here and would love to pray for you. I'd love to pray for you. Otherwise, let's sing and praise the Holy Spirit and ask her to fill us again.